You are listening to the Evolution Exchange podcast, a melding pot of ideas and inspiration shared by some of the most successful tech leaders in Australia. I'm Shauna. I help connect tech companies with top tech talent. And today I'm your host. And we are on. So welcome back, everyone, to another Evolution Exchange podcast. Today, I'm joined by four senior leaders within the Sydney technology industry. And we're going to be discussing the topic of building high-performing tech teams. We're going to cover areas such as surfacing ambiguity, um, looking at the key characteristics of high-performing, get the understanding um, of the why, and also looking at Conway's Law. So before jumping into the discussion, I think it'd be a great idea to introduce our panellists. Um, and I'm looking at Tim. Tim, do you want to go first? <laughs> I'm always sitting here Kick with, it off. with the biggest smile. I get picked first. <laughs> yeah. uh, intro yeah. of, of myself, uh, I'm Tim Sheridan, currently Engineering Director at 7 Plus, so in 7, seven West Media. Um, I joined in December. Prior to, prior to 7 Plus, I was at a company called Nano Digital Home Loans. Good to be here. Nice one. Thank you very much. Um, up next, um, how about John? Cool. Thanks, Shauna. Uh, yeah, I'm John Jenkinson, Engineering Manager at Mabel, which is a company that's uh, an online platform and we connect older Australians and people with disabilities uh, or their carers with independent support workers in the community. And, um, and the platform is where people can find and connect and manage their support teams uh, and have control and choice over more choice over the support that they receive. Uh, and I'm, I'm willing to look after one of the tribes uh, in the business uh, from the engineering side. Incredible stuff. Thank you. Um, Johan. Yeah, I'm Johan Brink from Surfcorp. Um, yeah, we're a multinational provider of serviced offices, virtual offices and co-working spaces, um, along with some of the telephony network services that go along with those. And yeah, I just I lead a team sort of replacing uh, uh, aging sort of monolith that is particularly sticky. And there has been previous failed attempts at removing the system. So yeah, I'm there to sort of bring in an alternative approach to to displace the system. Amazing. Thank you very much. Um, last but not least, Jeremy. Yeah, g'day. Um, so Jeremy Burton, I, I'm VP of Engineering at High Pages. Uh, High Pages obviously an online trading marketplace. So if you need a trader to come do a job around your home, post a job, we'll match you with three qualified licensed tradies. Um, I look after all of engineering in the space, which encompasses both our product engineering, so building the product, building the, uh, the service we offer, um, as well as our platform engineering space. So how do we actually run this sort of stuff and enable the teams? I look after our IT operations team as well. So the internal IT stuff, as well as uh, security architecture and our Salesforce team. So quite a, quite a broad remit there and sort of really look at thinking about the end-to-end -end experience. Nice one. Thank you very much, Jeremy. Um, yeah, no, we've got a pretty incredible po um, podcast panel here today and um, a lot of I know you all see very familiar faces within yourselves as well. So um, I'm excited to see where this one takes us. Um, so first of all, um, 
we're going to go through all of our, our subtopics, but it is pretty interesting topic today, building high-performance tech teams. Um, I think all you four have definitely got a lot of experiences going through those journeys in one way or another. Um, so the first um, topic that was brought today was from John um, at Mabel, and you wanted to kind of go through and highlight the key characteristics um, of a high-performance team. Um, and you've mentioned... Areas such as trust, constructive conflict, commitment, accountability, and into results. Well, yeah, take it away. Tell us, tell us your thoughts on that. Yeah, no, no problem, Shauna. Yeah, so uh, <clears throat> just before I get into that, as I think some of the key things for um, a team or, or a team that wants to be high performing is, is basically having that vision and knowing knowing where you're going and then setting team goals. Because uh, without that, you, you know, you'll have lack, lack of focus and, and direction. So that's one of the main things. And then getting into like the characteristics, um, the first one, a very, very important one from my, my, in my opinion, is trust within, within the team, the members within the team. And to build that, various things, you know, you want to build rapport with your colleagues, just make sure that, you know, there's, have a bit of fun, you know, as well. We, we, we you know, we spend a lot of time at work, so we want to want to make sure we do that. But um, getting that rapport and that trust, uh, being open and honest as well, um, definitely, definitely want to do that and, and foster um psychological safety within the team so you want to feel comfortable as a member uh that you can contribute and that your opinions are frowned upon or felt as though there's there's people that may have more dominant personalities there you want to feel as though that you can contribute in a way that there's no real retribution there and and you're all aiming at as i say at that that same vision um, and one thing to help that is is defining roles and responsibilities within the team um, so that you know your areas of focus. And then um, what we like to do is, is get people a bit more what we call T-shaped. So you've got a, a, a key uh, characteristic, a, a key role that you do, you know, so an engineer, for instance, and then they understand, you know, a little bit about data science or or design side, and and then gives you the opportunity to, to to jump in if you need to, maybe more on a high level, or to assist assist with the team or fill gaps if if gaps, you know, there's leave or illness or something like that. So uh, so yeah, that 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 sort of adds to the trust. And then <clears throat> I touched on it already, but con- constructive conflict. So so that's in in the discussions and the sessions, brainstorming, whatever whatever you tend to do um just encourage healthy debate basically um and and feel safe and and it also having a diverse it depends on the team but if you've got we tend to have like a you know various um elements to the team as i mentioned design uh data science we have a product manager in our teams as well uh, and just having that diversity of opinions and, and backgrounds and offerings in terms of the areas that, that, that you specialize in and then having that debate you know and then and then working out um uh, w- w- to making the best decision from that uh, and also promote creative creativity and innovation as well so that that's the area where you know some people have uh, this the you know the blue sky ideas and, and you may need to <laughs> something out very quickly so it's it's working that out as a team and then that obviously rolls on to commitment so once you've had your discussions um then it's it's collectively agreeing on, on a course of action for the for the problem or the feature or the product change that you're, you're working on 
um, and then do, doing what it takes to get the results, really. So as a, as a team, you know, you've said, right, this is what we're going to do, stick into it. There may be, you know, road bumps along the way, but um, stick into that plan. And then being accountable. So that's the next one. Um, as, as a group and as in, individuals, you know, taking that ownership of, of what you've committed to um, and know what's expected of everyone as well. So you, within your roles within the team um, and trust that, that, that everyone will be supported and, and that, that you will sort of enforce those expectations on, on what you want to do. And that leads on to results. So the key thing with results, we're, we're always looking for outcomes. So rather than, you know, just producing <clears throat> maybe a new module that goes live, great, it's out there. It's what was what was the reason? What's the outcome? And then measuring it, learning from it. And, and that may, may then uh, bias your um, chain of work that's coming up in which direction you might want to pivot or carry on with with something that you've you've already established as a, as a good, good way of, way of um, producing a feature that, that you've that you've rolled out so um yeah they're the, they're the key things for me i would say the trust is one of the main ones uh, and the accountability and then and then the others that the results tend to come from that so so that's my thoughts around that guys amazing look i think you know that, that's that's really uh, pertinent i think I agree with those characteristics very much. So I think, you know, connecting that all into the why and the understanding really helps people drive towards that. You know, it's like if I understand why we're doing something, if I understand what success looks like, the problem I'm solving for my customer, for my user, you know, I can measure the results and what I'm can, what i doing. The accountability I have is around, you know, I'm delivering towards those, those outcomes. You know, um, teams that really focus on outcomes, not outputs, it for me is absolutely crucial um, and, and you've got to know your why to do that. You've got to be able to connect what you're doing with why you're doing it with the purpose of the organisation and your, your broader customer base um, to, to, to know that. And, and it means that when teams are doing that, they can really focus on what's important and forget about what's not. And to me, when you're doing that, you are high performing. Awesome. How often do you check it? Like. I'm just thinking as well in terms of the why um, and how you kind of align the why. How often do you check in to make sure that everyone is, their understanding of, of the same why is is clear? Um, and is there different kind of like variations of the why depending on the developer versus the product manager? Or is everyone aligned, you know, understanding the, the true big picture? I mean, for me, everyone should be aligned towards the same place. I think it shouldn't matter your role. You, you're not there Ultimately, as an engineer, you're not there. You're, the purpose of you being in an organisation isn't to churn out code, it's to actually solve custom problems the same way as it is a product manager, the same way as it is a, an operations person, right? Like, ultimately, that's it. You know, the oft-quoted um, anecdote of, you know, you ask the janitor at, at the NASA space station, what are you doing here? Oh, I'm helping put someone on the moon. I mean, that, that, that analogy flies everywhere, right? And I think that you know, from at that level, you should you should really make sure that everyone's focused on why we're doing what we're doing, um, whose problem is it solving, that sort of stuff. I think for me, to your question of, you know, how often do you do check in and all that sort of stuff, I think it's it's always, right? It's always on it. You know, whenever someone has a problem, you should be relating it back to, well, why are we doing this? How yeah. is what we're doing, you know, how do the different options we've got contribute toward, meaningfully towards where we're trying to go? And that usually should give you a, a point and that, that's a good chance to check in. Yeah, I think I think it's always for sure. Like every every problem that we're focusing on should be aligned with with the overall strategy, and every team and every team member should know the why of what they're doing. 
but then also I think there should be a really dependable and consistent rhythm to like the formal communication of like what the strategy is and how it's changed from this year to from last year to the next and all of that so like that cadence and dependability is really important that way people know what to expect and when when to expect changes that was my next yeah, question yeah. I was like does the does the why change you know um and who who recognizes that as well when it feels change i think it i think it depends but often those sorts of changes i think come from the top like the mm -hmm. the ceo is in the market in um talking to shareholders talking to customers talking to the, the highest level kind of uh, of business but then it also should come from every level so um you can have inputs from software engineers from analysts from data scientists on like what they're seeing that align with the market and I think all of those things should be considered into some kind of cohesive plan for the team. I think you know I could talk through an exact example of how like we've just been through a strategy period um, recently and sort of thinking about the process. Um, as Tim said, it started us top down as a senior leadership team. We sort of thought about where we need to evolve the business to really understand the market and all that sort of stuff. Brought that down to a few sort of key salient points and a few aspects of the strategy, then took that to the team and said, hey, here's where we need to go. You guys, tell, here's your reason for being as a team. You tell us how you're going to execute on this um, and tell us how you're going to get there um, to, to fulfil the promise we've got here. And, and find that works really well because it, it's, you know, not everyone at a, at a sort of an engineering level is necessarily a strategy expert. They've certainly got valuable inputs. But once you break down that, that direction, you start to get a really good um, – a good, good uh, sort of put those guardrails up for those those teams to really know their patch really intimately and sort of talk to that specialization there. Yeah, I was going to say with a strategy as well is is business and your customer strategy. So you've got two and, and and basically a north star for the business, and then how that ladders down. So I I'm more on the on the the blueprints that we, that we put in place for our for our squads to to work from, and then and then having that empowerment piece, you know, to 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 guide, uh, but also once once you start to empower a team, um, once that once they're up and running, that's where you re really start to see, I I see the um the high output and performance. It's kind of given them opportunity to ha hold themselves accountable as well, isn't it? Within the within the main purpose of the why. Um, and then, well, Tim, you were saying there, when it comes from the top down, you kind of need the leadership to hold themselves accountable, isn't it? And then it starts there, then everyone kind of pulls their, their weight. Yeah, I mean... The teams put a lot of trust in in the leadership team to be kind of sailing the ship in the right direction. Mm -hmm. um, but at the same time, the leadership team should be giving the teams the opportunity to kind of make adjustments to that strategy as well, like trimming the sails, pulling. <laughs> I'm not a sailor, obviously. <laughs> You're hanging yeah. around with a sailor. <laughs> <laughs> Um, no, that's brilliant. Um, yeah, I think that that that's something that I think comes up quite often in high performance is accountability. Um, and then as well, I reckon that um, you touched on empowerment there, empowering people, John. Um, mm. what, what's your take on that? Like, how do you go about empowering people and how does that, res like, how do the results come from that? 
Yeah, so it, it's basically giving giving them the tools and and setting them up for success. You know, first first and foremost, and then from there, um, it's it's running. You know, allowing them to adjust their goals, as, as Tim said, trim the sales. Yeah, uh, it, it's it's something that that we we offer guidance, but it's more. Well, we may need to jump in now and again, but then we'll step back again. Um, I'm a mm-hmm. part of an LT within my tribe, so <clears throat> it's a combination of um, product design and other people within that team, and and that's what we want to do: we just focus and ensure that they're they're focused as well. And any support that, that, that that's required as well from the team is where we come in um, on that side of things. Yeah. Awesome, Johan. Do you want to add anything to to that one? <laughs> oh, you're on mute. <laughs> We had to have one of those on this call. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Um, I think, yeah, my thoughts on that is um, empowerment, I think, uh, goes along with sort of autonomy and mm-hmm. and ownership. And I th- what I would probably do is to try and scale the teams in a model that's appropriate to the structure of the business. So, I mean, mm-hmm. not all businesses are structured in the same way. Um, and I would say if, it, if a business is quite horizontally distributed, I'd probably try and scale the teams in a similar fashion just mm-hmm. so that the, the, te- the engineering teams can sort of work quite closely with their business stakeholders and to keep those feedback sort of loops as, as short as possible, um, which, yeah, and I think that just leads to a lot of autonomy and allows those teams to sort of innovate at quite a sort of more rapid pace. Yeah, you've got a lot more um, to come around that as well. So I'm keen to, to get on to, to that point for sure. Um, do you know, the, the autonomy and the empowerment piece pulls us in nicely to um, the next subtopic um, that, Tim, you brought to the table today, um, which you talk about your superpower is surfacing ambiguity. Um, <laughs> so I'm keen to understand that. And you, you, you kind of described it as, you know, sort of protecting your team until they're high performing. Um, so tell us a bit, bit what you mean by that and, and how that affects so they're, things. They're, they're two sort of different different topics, but I'll, I'll run into okay. the, the ambiguity one first. I feel like for me, this is sort of a tactic for um, for kind of building trust, surfacing issues within teams as quickly as possible. So what I mean by this is um, within any meeting, within any session, within any sprint, the team are operating operating on assumed knowledge. Like they 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 think they know everything. They think they have enough information to complete the job. They think they know they're going the right direction. What always seems to happen is a percentage of those facts that they're they're running on aren't actually true and and as a result they run in slightly the wrong direction or they build slightly the wrong thing so the reason i i kind of feel like it's one of my superpowers is i'm just not i I make sure I, i leave the pride and ego at the door when i come into any team and any meeting and i'm i'm willing to just ask those questions like i say this is this is a dumb question, but I'm going to ask it anyway. Have we thought about X or are we assuming Y? And it leads to conversations that kind of break down these assumptions early and quickly so then the team can get the right information. The reason it's important is if I'm if I'm the leader in the room and I'm willing to put myself yeah. out there to ask these simple questions, it kind of just breaks that ice and lets everyone else feel like 
it's safe for them to do so. Um, and as a result, we have a, a safer, more trusting team that um, is able to fail even at that smallest level. Like they can fail with asking a dumb question and the team just go, that's fine. Like good yeah. work for asking it. So that's yeah. that's all I mean by that. And I feel like it brings a lot of value. It saves a lot of time. It builds, it, this is not the shortcut guys to high performing team, but <laughs> it's one small element in building trust that is like a yeah. building block of high performance. So it's actually something that uh, connects quite well with myself and the team here at Evolution. Like when when we're, you know, hiring people, I'm I'm always like, you know, never assume. You just never assume that that is some that is what you think it is. It's asking the question, and I do always find myself when new people start and they're like, there's so much going on, like technology for one thing, and then into recruitment. I know this is another topic, but I just do simple things like, how do you spell that word? And they look at me like, is that? What? you don't know how to spell that word I'm like it's okay like it's fine and then exactly. it's like and, and, and then the it just worst, softens it all it do does the like, worst that can happen is you've just made more of a friendship with that person who yeah. you've asked that question of yeah so exactly. relationships are building and yeah trust is forming yeah and even going into meetings where you know a lot of the junior people come in here will, will be in meetings with, with people like yourselves who are like CTOs heads of and they're afraid to ask, you know, oh, what does that technology mean? Where if I'm in a meeting saying like, okay, what 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 does that mean? Or what can you tell me that again? Can you spell that word? Like, did I write that down right? And it kind of brings up a, a whole other feeling of like, okay, I can ask these questions. It's not stupid. Um, yeah. But yeah, I really like that, Tim. I have to say. Excellent. Anyone else do, do anything similar to create that trust? Um, and that's surfacing ambiguity. Look, a similar thing, similar to Tim, I think, never being afraid to ask any sort of question, I think, is is there. But also, um, you know, just just even encouraging people to, to to speak up. And, you know, I think, you know, something I, I think about a lot with, with alignment is it's just there's, there's no limit to how much you can overdo it, right? So if, if, mm -hmm. if people say, yeah, I get it, I get it, you just keep working at it, keep working at it because you want to be convinced rather than just assume it because they, they, they seem like it, it's there. I think that that makes a big difference. And, you know, being able to detect when people are aligned versus just think they are is, is a big a big piece. And ambiguity, as Tim says, ambiguity has a lot to do with that. Um, yeah. You know, being able to sort of get people out, out of that, um, really be clear on what it is they're doing and, um, and removing ambiguity from it is, is pretty crucial there. Brilliant. Yeah, we have we have um, uh, uh, we encourage collab cross collaboration as well between our teams because mm -hmm. we're in a similar point as Johan mentioned with monoliths, uh, and and that involves you know a cross collaboration across you know other other teams as well and squads. So um, that's a thing as well that can you know break down the barriers and and get the right people in the room. That that's the other thing, not just your own team. You may need to pull external mm -hmm. people in as well. And um, yeah, no, definitely. I really enjoy um, kind of pulling that whole piece away and, and making people feel comfortable and making sure that they're, you know, it's kind of yours to lose. So ask the questions in a way as well, you know, it's kind of accountability, empowerment, um, but also kind of leaving your ego at the door um, is a big, massive part of that. Um, Johan, I'd imagine you're probably in a situation as well because you said the platform you're building at the moment is quite sticky and it's kind of failed before. Um, so I'm sure you, you've probably got a lot of that where people kind of maybe are a little bit more like, you know, a little bit caught in the headlights. Yeah. But how, how have you found it? And is that something that you bring to the table to help? Yeah, so 
Yeah, so I think some of the challenges that I saw that we faced um, over the organization faced when they previously tried to displace this this the sticky monolith yeah. is I think a lot of it was almost uh, it's a bit of the software, but a bit of the teams that was not necessarily structured the right way. So I think the previous attempt was very much a technology focus where they where they tried to optimize too early to try to build sort of horizontal platforms and build microservices around sort of technology aspects without really being aware of what the, when the business expectations are. And I think that's sort of where I brought Conway's law into, into, this, into the equation to say, instead of trying to optimize early to push an optimized model on the business, start with the business first and I mean, so we started looking at domain-driven design and breaking the, the sort of the business requirements down into bounded contexts and just using all the DDD terminology to start communicating in both internally in the development teams, but also with the business, building that ubiquitous language with them so that the, just the communication works a lot more sort of efficient. And mm. I think in the process, we ended up with a software product that looked very different to to the previous failed attempt where our services were now more and they didn't always make technology sense because they would seem like there's a lot of sort of code duplication and a lot of messaging sort of happening but it, for some reason it just sort of worked because the, the, all the business stakeholders could see the progress and they could see some of their problems being solved quite quickly and they didn't have to wait for the delivery of um, like a, a massive sort of platform you know, that takes years to build and that it ultimately ends up very generic. So they ended up with software that's tailored to their needs in their small department. And yeah, it's the general satisfaction, especially from the business side, yeah, definitely improved. <laughs> Look, I think that that to me is, you know, that Conway's law is so crucial here when you think like that and, and the ubiquitous language and all that sort of stuff. The number of times you see, you know, if an engineering team will work in isolation and they will, as Jan said, they're producing that technically looks right, but actually doesn't map the business at all. And it's almost engineers saying, here's how I think the business should run without actually being on the front line of how that business is running. And I think that to me is a red flag every time. Um, I, I want to see engineers talking to the salespeople, the operations people, to the to the legal team, to all these different people who use the software or, or to the users or, or through product management or however it is to really understand how is it that, that people actually think, how do they talk? And, you know, domain-driven design does give you such a great toolkit for that. Um, and once you start to get to that place, you know, not only do you start to build something that really represents the needs of the business or the customers, but also um, cuts down a lot of the friction. Like it's amazing the cognitive load that you take on, try to translate from, okay, so my requirements say we need to do this. You know, the user story is that, you know, A needs to do B. What does that mean in our system? Uh, oh, that's right. That's this and this and this. And that just that overhead, that cognitive load slows you down, leaves room for error, and to me, really detracts from the from high performance. Mm -hmm. I'm gonna um, put myself out there and just say, <laughs> sorry, Tim, <laughs> um, that I'm not gonna assume I understand what Con Conway's law is, but I think I might know. But um, yeah probably wrong, but what exactly is Con Conway's Lawn? Why is it sort of something that's resented? And um, yeah, tell me a bit about that. <laughs> yeah, as I think Conway's Law states that um, 
organizations tend to design systems that mirror their com internal communication structures. So if you have a distributed organization producing a system, you would most likely end up with a distributed system. And if you have an organization that's sort of co-located all in the same office and, and, and no sort of asynchronous communications between those members, you'd probably end up with a very sort of monolithic um, application too that mirrors that structure. Hmm. Awesome. Okay. I think, uh, you know, I think it's it's one of those things that people often try and fight and really leads to, as I say, challenges and um, and inefficiencies where you try and work against the way the business operates. Because really, to me, a lot of what Conway's law is talking about is this is how the business actually behaves. And if the systems you design map to that, then you actually start to to sort of get that efficiencies in your sort of your systems mirror the business and the processes. So you can really, and, and from that, you can focus on the domains within the business and optimize for them locally. Um, you know, there's there's another concept um, when you do want to sort of change how things work, they're called the reverse Conway maneuver, which is leveraging the law to say, well, actually, if I'll design the business in a way that suits the architecture I want. Um, but that that's sort of it's flipping it around and, and acknowledging that However, the business is is how the system will be. So let's make the business how I want the system. But you know that that's sort of a something you do when you know you observe issues with things not working um, and leveraging some of these properties. Nice. Yeah, and I think for those type of, I think a lot of startups, I think probably folk work in that sort of way. And I think it's definitely something that you would need your executive teams buy in for because it, it definitely sort of goes to disrupt the, the current business processes, which is necessary sometimes if you're in. Like mm. if your mandate is to disrupt. So, yeah. I, th I think with any of these, anything that's fundamentally changing the way the organisation works, it's never going to succeed without top-level support. I think that that's just crucial and has to be driven from there because any resistance is just going to prove futile. And, you know, again, you spend all your time fighting internal sort of pressure and uh, wading through mud rather than actually making the meaningful change you need. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I think it's, uh, it definitely is pulling it right back to the why, isn't it? That everyone understands why we're here, why why we're doing what we're doing. Like, why is the business existing? Yeah, exactly right. And what's this? Yeah. Okay. Amazing. Um, anyone else like to add anything to that? Are we all Well, I, I've got one that maybe is yeah, a go. good segue, hopefully, to the one to your next topic. Hopefully. <laughs> But I mean, the whole, the whole idea of designing a system around your organizational structure and like building... Um, building a system to match map your domains also drives autonomy. Like it allows your teams to have the right minds, the right knowledge, the right skill sets to just solve problems independently without having to worry about all of the other parts of the business. So, um, yeah, you you end up with a high performing, efficient, aligned team through that as well through that approach. Nice. Um, Tim, you also um, spoke about shielding and protecting your team until they're high performing. Yeah. So tell me a bit about that. I mean, this is an, just another kind of tactical. This is not a huge, not a huge profound thought or anything, but more of a mm. when coming into a team, um, one of the one of the first things that you need to really establish is the ability to to be predictable as a team. Like if you can't if you can't ship products on a regular basis, if you can't um, do a release without having production issues, et cetera, um, then you're going to struggle to start to 
optimize like the things we're talking about here are, are more like optimizing an all right running team but if you can't even get the baseline first then you're going to have issues so yeah as a as a leader of a team um kind of providing them with enough protection to start to build the relationships build communication lines build proper processes and ways of working that with each other um without all the noise of like stakeholders interrupting them or production issues yeah. making them react react accordingly etc cetera, etc cetera. um yeah you sorry i don't know where i was going with that so yeah if you if you can protect them from all of those external um stimuli then you can allow them to form and start to actually be productive and predictable yeah i know john you're always talking about getting the 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 team to storm and get the team vibing is that what you mean by that it's almost like it becomes a muscle memory and then you know the other things that they react to then you know that second nature is the actual what they do and then the other things are just noise then but yeah what, what's your thoughts on that yeah, it's it's having those <clears throat> those processes in place that that will potentially shield you. Yeah, so yeah, issues in production, then there's a process. You know, follows your help desk uh, scenario. Come and you know, there's there's various processes in place. Without having those, that that is definitely a disruptor to to especially new teams, because that's where you want to you know that what they call it forming storming norming performing yeah so yeah. that forming and storming phase that, that's critical to then create those bonds and relationships that then that then you'll then take mm -hmm. forward so yeah i completely agree with tim on on his comments there around that um that yeah vital at the start of, of, of forming a new team how long do you kind of like protect them and how do you kind of go about that in terms of, you know, your position, um, Tim, what you're talking about there, like what, what sort of like scenarios can you give us or examples? Yeah. Like of it, that? it always, it always depends as everything does. <laughs> of course. But, um, and, and it's not only for brand new teams, like as teams have changes in, in yeah. structure or new team members or team members leave, et cetera, you can kind of fall back into these, these ways of working so yeah you've got to keep a finger on the pulse but um how long how long was the question and kind of well no more sort of like a yeah like scenario of of, of example of you sort of the types of things that you would kind of oh, keep do, them safe like, from or do yeah, yeah so like if do. you're seeing if you're seeing um meetings the team having meetings with some kind of external stakeholder who who needs something done by them? Uh, yeah. You can see that they they're kind of having a direct interaction with them. That that's a bit of a red flag. Like teams right. should have enough structure and process in place to say, we have we run two weekly sprints or like quarterly planning sessions. If you want to affect the product in that way, you need to come through the front door and follow our process. So so yep. there's like a bit of a tactical way to protect them there. But nice. um, these distractions and things come from every different direction and dimension like <laughs> the team the team are pulled in every every way possible so you just need to keep a keep an eye out for them like there could be a a noisy um a noisy ops person who wants cost optimizations and they're going straight to your engineers you you need to go and have a chat with them and say like if you need to if you need to get these optimizations done we need to follow the process mm. just just like i mentioned before so yeah, it can happen everywhere, but 
as the leader of the team, it's important for me to just keep a finger on that pulse and stay close to each of the team members, make sure that they know that they need to focus on the, the planned sprint and the strategy that we've got for them. So, yeah. Excellent. Awesome. Um, great point. Um, anyone else want to add to that point of Tim's? We are good. <laughs> okay. Um, so the next um, uh, sort of subtopic and um, discussion points was brought by yourself, Jeremy. Um, I think we spoke quite a lot around autonomy and alignment, um, but you've also mentioned autonomy and alignment, but also connect this with a mission and a purpose. Um, so, yeah. Yeah, look, I think because I think this all sort of puts a nice bow around a lot of what we've been talking about in a lot of ways. You know, I think we're we're really talking about um, the why connecting the mission and the purpose really connects to the why, right? Why are we doing what we're doing? That's our mission. That's our purpose. But that allows the team to have the the autonomy, and that that is the alignment that um, that builds towards that. So if the team's aligned with the mission, the purpose, the why, you know, they're, they're able to sort of take autonomy and run with it. I think. The, the other flip side of autonomy with alignment, I think the observation I've made is that if, if teams are sort of, there's some, you know, teams are just completely autonomous without any alignment, but they don't necessarily run in, in generally the same direction. And this manifests in a lot of different ways. You might see it as, you know, you get a Frankenstein product where every part feels different and doesn't really feel like you're building one overall product, but it's lots of different pieces. And it's very obvious who built what, which is a pretty terrible user experience. Um, you get it in technology sprawl as well, where you know every team wants to do things their own way as, at a certain size, whilst that autonomy has been great for the team moving, the over, overhead of managing that when things move actually turn into much more of an overhead to carry. And, you know, um, and that, and also, um, you know, and so just, just understanding how teams can work with that autonomy, they can do what they're doing, but they need to be aligned in the right direction to make that work is, is super critical. And so setting those guardrails, and I think as as leaders and senior leaders, that, that's our responsibility is to set the guardrails, set the, hey, this is the general direction we're going in, how you get there, you know, to an extent, here's all your options, and it can be pretty broad or it can be pretty, um, or it can be narrow as, as fits the situation, but here's how, you know, here's where you're going, here, here's some ways to get there, make it happen. You know, I'm not, I'm not going to paint the path for you, but I'm just going to sort of put the walls up around it so that, you know, you can you, you get get in the generation and get things uh, done in a way that makes sense. Okay, that's brilliant. Um, anyone want to add more more to that, um, that kind of yeah. importance around that? Yeah, go yeah, ahead. I, yeah, I've got a thought that I could sort of add there on the topic of guardrails. And it, it's, it's a bit more multifaceted because, it, I mean, it, it starts with guardrails, but it sort of, kills like two or three birds with the same stone and yeah. we found we've implemented a, a tactical way of guardrails that sort of help us to keep things consistent across these autonomous teams but also to help build motivation because i think the more motivated your developers are i mean the, the better they would logically perform and the, the way we handle the guardrails is while we have autonomous teams, we'd like to them to build on similar technology stacks. I mean, we don't enforce that with like shared packages or, or anything like that. So each team would have their own code base in their own sort of Git repo where they can innovate at, at individual paces. I mean, they can be on different framework versions, um, et cetera. But we, we, ha we use something called the template solution, which all the teams can contribute back into. So if a team finds like a really nice well to handle like logging, so a lot of those cross-cutting concerns, we don't create packages for the cross-cutting concerns. We still build it into the code base, but then we contribute that back into the shared template that all the various teams 
pull from. So, so I think teams then have still have the autonomy to choose whether they take on these new recommendations, but at least it's built in a solution that should be relatively compatible with, with what they're working on. And I think the motivation part is just it gives them a little a bit more of a sense of meaning where they're contributing. It's not just standards that it's being pushed onto the teams, but it's standards that they can also influence themselves through through, through pull requests and contributions. I think putting checkpoints in as well, you know, like uh, checking in with your architects and making sure that, you know, what you what you've run away with is going to be something that's viable within within the, the realm of where you, where you're currently working. So yeah, I completely agree with that. Um, but it is it's it's getting a, a, just a checkpoint. Yep, that's good. Get it across someone else and and then move on from there. Yeah, I okay. I I think down that line, I agree. I think um like those checkpoints. But then there's also just constant feedback. Like if you're giving your team the autonomy to achieve a certain goal or outcome, then you kind of want to continue to give them feedback over that over that course to make sure like even at many different levels, not just like outcome levels, but at technical levels and um, and product levels, you, you need to be giving them feedback that they are actually on the right track. It, it is aligned with what we're trying to do just to give them the confidence and pace to keep going. And the team reaching out for feedback as well. So that's the other thing. Yeah. Not just you, it's like come, coming to whoever they need to go to to, to get that feedback. Well, is it going the right way? This is how we think it should work? What do you think? Yeah. Especially to the leaders. Yeah, making the time to be there for them to answer those questions, yeah. And you know what, actually, just coming back to this, I'm building it, obviously, all comes down to getting results. Like, how do you measure, a t- like, how do you know a team is high performing? As high performing team, different in different businesses, you know, like, yeah, what, what, like, yeah, how do you measure so that? The magical question, isn't it? Is there a number you can just pull out of the air that tells you, <laughs> yeah. hey, this team's performing or not? Um, there really isn't. Um, Interestingly, it's been quite a hot topic um, lately, I think, around, you know, how do you measure developer productivity and developer happiness and all that sort of stuff. Um, I think that, uh, you know, it's been some really interesting work done probably the last 12 months and it really got got um, a lot of attention I, I've seen. Um, you know, there's, there's a bunch of things you can look at that are sort of metric driven. So, you know, there's the Dora metrics, of course, which talk sort of some DevOps metrics, but to a lot of modern software businesses, they're actually, they're almost, you're, you're within a rounding error of, you're always elite in a way, you know, I think any any good technology firm will be in a good place there. And if you're not, it, it is a good place to strive, but mm. there's more, so much more to it than that. Um, I think, you know, there's a concept that's come out lately called the space framework, which is satisfaction, performance, uh, activity, uh, collaboration and efficiency. And they all talk about different aspects of the, of the, um, the, uh, the way in which engineers work and a way in which performance can be measured. Um, and that what it recognises is there is no one thing that, that fits all. You need to look across a variety of different areas. So satisfaction is, is actually asking developers, how satisfied are you with the development environment? Because if if people are frustrated, they're not performing, right? That That's as simple as it boils down to. That's a subjective measure. You run a developer survey for that, um, you know, you can get some really great insights. Uh, performance is how well is your, your product's performing. So that's really what are the outcomes? Are you hitting your OKRs? Are you, um, you know, are you getting the, the direction of the traction you should? Because a good team should be making some good progress there. Um, activity is your classic sort of 
output measures. So, you know, how much work are we doing? What's our, um, what's our velocity? Those sorts of things. Uh, collaborations and interesting ones, you know, how well is knowledge shared throughout the, the different teams? So is, you know, team A helping team B, are they able to communicate efficiently and effectively, you know, how are pull requests handled between teams, all those sorts of technical things. And then efficiency is looking at things like flow efficiency. So, you know, um, we use cycle time as a really good measure there about, you know, your process is in a good place, your cycle time's low, there's not a lot of waste, you're actually a high-performing team. There's a huge amount more to it than this, and there's lots of different metrics you can pick for each of those categories that, that start to talk to, but it starts, you know, what matters to you, what in your context, how would high-performing look like? But the crucial thing yeah. about that, that sort of a perspective is, it's not just metrics you can pull out of a system. You do need developer input for it and that there are multiple metrics that sort of multiple areas of metrics that really contribute to this perspective. Yeah, I think that that's the thing. It's a super subject, subjective idea yeah. of being high performing. Like what I value, you guys might value slightly differently. But I mean, on top of what Jeremy said, I feel like the ability to meet expectations, ability to change, ability to uh, fully engage the, the minds of your team, um, your team's ability to retain the best people on an ongoing basis. And then the last one we've talked about heaps, which is just ability to actually produce the right outcomes for the business. Like it should always come down to outcomes at the end of the day, but all these other things matter too. Like if, you, if you're producing outcomes for a quarter, but you're burning through a, half your team in the process, I'd say that's yeah. not high performing. It must be so hard to kind of get the balance of like right this is what's right for the business but this is what software engineers want to do now and this is a, you know a safe dev environment i was speaking to a guy the other day and he was talking about how him and two different teams have set up um their architecture very different and he has a serverless um architecture using lambdas and the other team just use kafka and he was just basically saying that like that team has literally lost a lot a lot of 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 members and his team has retained the whole lot and he said it came down to it almost being like a template of a safe place to just throw a new dev in and get stuck in um but then it also comes down to he can't get enough budget to add to that now because the the results of the business is is slightly different so it's it, it must be so hard to create that balance of the satisfaction and then the actual efficiency of it it's a, it's yeah. very hard it's very hard very I, think, hard. I think the underlying Underlying theme across all of the different conversations we've had is that people are the key. So find really mm -hmm. good people, give them the right environment to thrive, and then hold on to them um, as long as you can and, and engage them as much as you can. I think, you know, this comes back a bit to, <laughs> it does sound like a bit of a broken record here, but the why, even when you're talking about a developer yeah. environment and why did we choose the technology we did and why is it important for the business? You know, why are we working in a particular way? What outcomes does it do? And, you know, mm -hmm. something that engineers, in my experience, especially when you're a bit more junior, often think, you know, you hear a problem, right, I've got the solution, I'm going to run at it. And yeah. the more senior you get, the more you realise it depends. And the ability to articulate options and trade-offs is something that to me identifies a really excellent engineer and a high performing one so and that applies whether it's system design or tool choice or any of that sort of stuff so hey here's the environment we've got here are the options we considered and here's why we chose the one we did because you know it meant it actually helped us achieve this and we acknowledge it actually it hurts in this way but for us 
we have to focus on these other things because that's what achieves the outcomes we're, we're looking for. I think when you can, if you can articulate that in your decision making, you can then makes it easier to sort of when you bring in new people on or you want other people yeah. to understand why or how you've done something. It really helps with that to take them on that journey. Brilliant. I may, helping your teams grow as well, that's the other thing, because you, you yeah. have various levels of, 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 if you talk about engineers, various levels. So it's making sure that, you know, the more junior people are encouraged to, you know, see what the seniors are doing, the coaching elements that they're doing, get fully stuck in, ask questions. Uh, as we say, no questions, silly, but you'll get all, them all, you know, coming out. So, and then you probably won't be able to answer a few. So that's that's the thing that happens as well. You know, you'll get questions from a junior. So, Oh, bugger, I haven't done that for five years. So, yeah. yeah so that, that's, that's well within a team, having that balance and then encouraging people to grow as well. And once yeah. you grow, it just gets better still. Excellent. I know one thing I noticed um, when I'm qualifying engineers for different types of roles um, and people are looking for senior engineers um, and you kind of give two people a very similar profile at job spec and they're like, hey, that, did they use microservices? And you've got like a mid-level just wants to use microservices. And then you have a senior engineer who's like, right, tell me your experience of microservices. And then they were like, well, there's a place to use it and there's a place absolutely not to use it. And they just talk about, you know, their full awareness of like, you know, it's good, but it's also terrible. Like it needs to be, now, why are they using it? Like, what is the, the I suppose, the constraints within the environment mm. and what are they? Rather than, and then you kind of, then that's kind of like really quickly, you can kind of go, okay, you're definitely not quite senior just yet because you're like, you know, you're coming with one solution, you want to just do that one thing. Whereas a true senior is like, look, microservices will work here. Or they're like, yeah, I want to speak to them first. I want to understand what the systems are and why they're using it before I get stuck in there. Do you know what I mean? What am I getting myself in for? Um. But it definitely comes down to that, the why and understanding like the, the bigger picture um, all around, isn't it? And, and getting the right people. Um, but then, John, your point there about, you know, recognising the the more junior people, I'd imagine that must be really hard then to kind of keep them roped in um, and keep them interested when it's not, you know, a buzzword that they're using, you know, and, and to help them grow um, through those yeah. times where you are kind of you know, maybe working with something a bit more legacy because that's what yeah. the business needs. Fully engaged, pair programming, you know, <laughs> keep, keeping them, you're not just throwing the easy tasks at them. It's like giving them a challenge all the time. Yeah. And, and what I find, tend to find is is some of the juniors that we brought on is is the very bright. They want to learn. They're really keen. So we'll just foster that. And, and you know, because eventually I always say with, with engineers is, I want them to come up to my level and then overtake me and then, and then I can yeah. progress from there. Do you know what I mean? So, so yeah. Absolutely. And, you know, if you're working with junior engineers, you're getting, I, I love working with them because you're getting this different mindset, this whole sort of, it's not, it's not got all the war wounds that for want of a better term that we've all got, you know, and, and so they're coming yeah. at it with this fresh ideas, fresh way of thinking about stuff. And it's actually really awesome and really, uh, can often challenge, you know, you can sort of get stuck in it in your lane sometimes. And so having someone jolt you out um, is great. And, you know, the, the best for me, you know, the more I expect the senior you get, the more I expect your role is less hands-on but more coaching those below you and, you know, really helping bring the best out of them and uplifting them because that's how you scale yourself, right? Um, if, if you're just sitting there typing on a keyboard the whole time, you're one person. If you're you know, coaching, pairing and teaching for others, that that's you uplifting the capability of four people. That that's a significant improvement factor. So, you know, you hear people in the past have talked about 10X engineers. I think 
you know, I think hopefully we've done away with that terminology now, realising that the, um, you know, the, the genius jerk is just not a personality type you want yeah. in your team environment. But the, for me, a 10x engineer is someone who's actually enabling and um, and growing their team members to, to help them perform better and be more high performing because uplifting everybody and scaling everybody together. Brilliant. I think actually it's funny enough, Johan had this in one of his subtopics and it was scaling the team through ownership and autonomy. Um, it just pulls right into to your point there, Jeremy, like absolutely scale is so important, but it's probably also looking at yourselves as leaders of like surrounding yourself with those right people um, and recognising like, yeah, like this person's actually going to be better in this space than me and kind of like dropping the ego at at the door but Johan what's your take and what's your kind of I know you had a couple of other points we already touched on around Conway's law I think we covered that but just in regards to your topic around scaling the, the, the team through ownership and uh, autonomy like what what's sort of your yeah your, your thoughts and experience around it yeah I think that's probably a bit of a reiteration of what I mentioned before and it was just that scaling autonomy was around sort of in a match if your organization has a more horizontal sort of structure that your team okay. sort of scale the same way but I mean I can probably add to that just around um sort of the feedback loop because as you mm. scale horizontally you don't want to lose that connection between the teams and I think that's why that that, that feedback loop of sort of constantly contributing back to the guardrails uh, just keeps everybody in the loop and keeps all the teams sort of connected to to a, a, to a common purpose or a, not yeah. necessarily a common purpose but a, a common way of doing things and a common sort of approach which I think would give you sort also improved developer mobility between those teams I mean because realistically mm -hmm. with a team sort of shrink and grow and you know, as employees churn at some point you might need to move developers between teams and if, if the teams have sort of departed too far from the way you know from the common way of doing things it can be quite hard to mm. to move developers between teams and i think if you keep that sort of feedback loop going at least developers can move between those teams more easily mm -hmm. and i think what you know one of the certainties of corporate life, especially in sort of medium to large organisations, is there'll always be reorgs at some point and services yeah. will need to change hands. I'm a massive believer in you build it, you own it, or you you own it, you run it. Um, you know, teams owning and operating their own software rather than throwing it over the fence to some other team to run it. And I think but to do that, you know, you've got to accept the trade-off is that when things change hands, there's a learning curve for someone else to pick it up. And so to what your hand was saying, that the more sort of aligned you can be there, um, the, the easier that is and the less overhead that takes. And and also the, the idea of like a common, like we, you mentioned it before, Jeremy, the ubiquitous language, which relates to DDD <laughs> in terms of like the business domain and whatever else. But I feel like that idea extends to everything. Like if we're all thinking in a, in a cohesive way and have like a common way of thinking about the system and the tools and and yeah. consistency across all those things then there's a lot of value in that i think you yeah. apply ddd to your sort of developer platforming and developer experience and, and you get that i think and you know the whole platform thinking these days starts to to really think about it in that way yeah brilliant and and tim you also had um some uh, points that i just missed and you were bringing it back to like looking at the elements of what you guys were just talking about there around people process practices and platform i can All see right. you look like you forgot yeah i'm like going through my notes. did i have no. another one i did didn't i um yeah, yeah. So my thinking around this one was just like the order of operations of how to, of how to yeah. kind of attack 
your That's teams right. to improve them into a high-performing team. So I think it starts with the people, like I mentioned before. People yeah. are key. It's a, the baseline of the team and and everything kind of depends on the people. Um, within people, I think there's um, there's the something we haven't touched on is the composition, like the actual actual players on the field is a, right. a really important thing. Like you don't want all Ronaldo's because you're going to end up with lots of lots of kicking. <laughs> I'm obviously not a soccer fan. Lots of kicking. Everyone's lots of trying to score a goal. No one's doing the yeah. defendant. But you want, exactly. you want a diverse team. That's where the idea of like a diverse team comes into play. Um, some people who are pushing, some people who are following, some people who um, are really solid contributors, some people who are breaking new ground. But yeah, the composition is really important. Um, communication lines and the structure of the actual team and organization comes into that layer of thinking. And then I don't think I have time to go through all of them, but then on top of that, you can start to chip away through like the processes. Once you have, once you have your people sorted out, then making kind of optimizing your processes to be more efficient and more consistent. Um, mm -hmm. Once you get them down to a, a science, then you can start to optimize your, your practices is kind of like the next level of thinking. And then on top of that is your actual out, outputs, like the actual code and the actual product on top of that. But before you've got those other three things going really well, I think you're going to struggle to produce a really solid, stable, quality uh, platform or product. Yeah. The end of the day, it kind of comes back to that proper team effort, isn't it? Um, I never even thought about the composition, actually. Um, it's so important. It, it's a bit um, invisible because like we, yeah. we hire software engineers and product managers, but mm -hmm. once you go under the hood, they're all completely different people, even though they yeah. have a, a common skill set. So yeah, finding, looking under the hood and finding out who they really are and what they want and how they operate, super important. Excellent. Anyone want to add to that, guys? Or are we all running out of time? <laughs> <laughs> no, look, I, I wouldn't wouldn't add to that. Just sort of agree with what Tim's saying completely. Yeah. Like I think, you know, without devolving into a sort of a conversation about hiring, I think really understanding the needs of your team when you're building it is super important. And I, I think hiring for that rather than just pure technical skills of well, you know, one or one dimension is so important. And soft, you know, engineering or, or building good software as a team-based activity, not an individual pursuit. I think that's something we've learned really well over the last 10 years at least you know i think there's probably people who've known it for far longer but i think it's really come to prominence the last 10 or 15 years and and i think understanding what makes a good team is is you know it's in the title a high performing team not a high performing yeah. individual right and, and to me you know there, there's so many of these elements that go into it that, that that's that's you gotta you gotta understand them all you gotta sort of piece them all together and that that's the jigsaw we build yeah um, maybe we could all just go around and kind of give a little synopsis of what we've kind of maybe any pennies I've dropped today or what we're kind of taking away from it. Um, I know for me, definitely the space framework um, is something that I could absolutely implement day to day uh, here at Evolution for sure. Um, and then the composition is a really important piece. I think when I'm helping teams um, create a retention, uh, retaining environments. Because I think if you have people complementing each other, um, it's going to allow people to strive in areas they're really, really great in, but then someone else will balance out and teach them into an area that, you know, they they want to grow in. I think that's important for me as a responsibility to help teams scale. Um, but definitely, I think there's some brilliant points in there. Um, the Conway's Law, uh, I've, I've learned um, a new kind of <laughs> theory around that. Um 
And absolutely, I think right into the very first point of trust um, that um, John brought, um, definitely, in, and, and kind of creating that, um, you know, scratching the surface of ambiguity for sure, Tim. Um, but yeah, uh, what are you guys all, all thinking at this point? I think it's it's been great. It's solidified a lot of the thinking that that, that we already had, uh, and and also yeah, the, the space comment from um, Jeremy as well was good. You know, in, in regards to that, uh, yeah, it's very similarly aligned. I think Jeremy and um, in in that regard, yeah, and then uh, so some of the other comments, yeah, it's it's it's, it's just adding adding to what we know, and then also uh, ensuring that we as leaders implement these things and ensure that we keep on top of it you know we want people to be on empowered and autonomous but it's just those checkpoints i think they're, they're the key uh, from our perspective and, and getting that growth as well the growth yeah i think what stood out to me is yeah like a lot of these thoughts are not you know it's not just particular applicable in my sort of space but i see it's quite universal and a yeah. lot of these thoughts occur in all organizations and i think just specically the whole Dissolving of ambigu- ambigu- ambiguity. Um, that's something I struggle probably, with that word all the time. <laughs> <laughs> it's definitely something I've been passively doing, but I think what it's yeah. I think after this conversation, I might actually start sort of doing that in a more active capacity and being more intentional about it. Because yeah. yeah, I do see a lot of value in that. Brilliant. Yeah, and look, I think for me, um, you know, again the. It's so crucial to, as Tim said, sort of protect your teams and that sort of stuff. And I think sometimes that can get a little bit lost in, in the noise, um, you know. And and but again, like 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 Johnny and Anna sort of mentioned, I think there's so much common ground here. And you know, the, the, the themes of, of of the autonomy, of the alignment, of the why, of the purpose. I think you know, if you can focus on one, getting one thing right, that's probably the thing that's going to help you the most because the other stuff sort of falls under that. You know, help, and that that's a people thing. It's connecting your people with with that, mm-hmm. um, and that that sort of empowers them to do to do their utmost best to and produce their best work. Brilliant. And then for me, I I um been trying to think of a good way to wrap this up. I've, I just feel like it's always a pleasure to, to just meet to meet some peers in the industry and and hear their thoughts on these sorts of topics that I'm, yeah. I'm really interested in and get quite excited about. All I can say is can't wait to get out there and build some high-performing teams. Brilliant. Sounds great, guys. Um, and it was an absolute pleasure having you all on here. And honestly, like I've literally taken so many notes. <laughs> Um, and it genuinely like uh, Johan said it might not seem right off the bat something that fits into you know maybe different industries or different organisations but absolutely I come out of all these like with so many ideas that I can just add like to day to day stuff so it's incredible so thank you thank you so much for all coming here today and I think we will wrap it up um, on that note 